Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Ian Rowe is with us today. He is founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a fellow at American Enterprise Institute and former CEO of Public Prep. He's also worked for Teach for America, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and MTV. MTV, the corrupter of the youth. Uh, yes, yes. I, I tried. Pro- I, I tried to play my part to make it less corrupt, but we yes. can talk about that. <laughs> we, we, we need people like you in there. He has a book just out called Agency, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victim narrative and discover their pathway to power. Welcome, Mr. Rowe. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Well, let's get a little background. First, what was or is public prep? Oh, well, public prep is... uh... Because a lot of that, your experience comes in in the book. So. Yeah, you know, I've been very fortunate throughout my career. I mean, you just listed some of the organizations, but from my time, you know, after business school, I went to work at Teach for America. So, you know, there trying to recruit outstanding individuals to teach in urban and rural locations across the country. I was at I was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, so I got that kind of view of the world. Um, but it wasn't really, uh, and I was at the White House as well during the the time that No Child Left Behind had just been passed. So, yes. so, so I've seen I've seen a lot of sort of perspectives around the factors that really drive young people to succeed or not. But it wasn't really until running schools, particularly in the heart of the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So, in 2010, uh, after being at the Gates Foundation, the White House, uh, MTV. I made a 10-year commitment. I said, I will. I made up a word. I said, I'm going to make a decadal commitment um, to run this institution and grow this network of schools. Because one of the things I think is a, a challenge, and particularly in education, is that leaders leave prematurely before having a chance to really build and strengthen the institution, um, and in this case, schools. And so there at Public Prep, you know, started with two campuses, ultimately grew it to now six or even seven, uh, more than 2,000 students um, in elementary and middle school. Uh, Each year, uh, nearly 5,000 kids on the wait list. Mm -hmm. Um, And the vast majority of our kids, um, low-income kids, primarily Black and Hispanic, uh, you know, I'm now launching Vertex Partnership Academies, which is going to be an international baccalaureate high school. This was uh, my. This was actually my next question. What is and we'll we'll come back to public prep you know, as as we go along in the book. But and what is Vertex Partnership Academies? Yeah. So you know, so I ran a network of public charter schools, elementary and middle schools for the last decade. I you know I fulfilled my ten year commitment, and 
you know, but the challenge is, is that you do all this great work through eighth grade, then what, you know, what, what happens? And in New York City, there's some fantastic high schools, you know, Stuyvesant, I went to Brooklyn Tech, one of the specialized high schools, you know, I'm a, I'm a K to 12, um, New York City kid, public school kid. But the reality is that there is a, a paucity of really high quality options, particularly in certain communities, like in the Bronx, like where we're opening Vertex Partnership Academies, District 12, only 7% of kids that start ninth grade, four years later, graduate from high school ready for college. Mm-hmm. You know? and, the, and, mm-hmm. and that's been going on for generations. So I really well, what started- you said, uh, you, you know, what you said about, uh, you know, eighth grade, okay. And it's always struck me that, you know, the NAEP exams are mostly fourth and eighth grade. Yeah. And they're broadcast so often as marking trends, but, you know, it doesn't matter what happens in fourth grade unless we see what happens to those same kids by 12th grade, right? Correct. Correct. No, no, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and unfortunately, the trending is not very positive. Um, it's not as if, you know, you could accept lower outcomes in fourth grade if we were to see massive jumps in eighth and twelfth and just, yeah. you know, that sort of the academic progression. But that's not what's happening. I am mean, across the country, this is pre-COVID in 2019, as you just said, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, still only 37% of all American kids were reading at um, NAEP proficiency levels at fourth and eighth grade. So right. we have a real serious... Um, uh, problem in our country. It's, it's not flashing news in education, but one of the most critical elements, high quality high schools that provide multiple pathways are in short supply. And so I decided to put my efforts into now building a new uh, school that I think can be very, very special. Uh, the book now, if we, if we turn to that agency, You begin by going back to what you mentioned a few moments ago. You go back to your childhood in school in Queens, uh, right, in New York City. What was was the situation, the general situation in the schools at that time? And this was the mid-70s, yeah? Yeah, this was the mid-70s, yeah. um, My parents had uh, come to the United States from Jamaica, West Indies, via pit stop in London, Um, but, you know, came to this country in search of the American dream. And uh, initially had moved to Brooklyn, uh, but then ultimately moved to Queens, to the small town Laurelton, Queens, which was lovely, predominantly Jewish, uh, Italian, predominantly white. And there was more and more black families moving in. And unfortunately, that became a source of racial tension. Uh, There were more and more incidents. And our junior high school, junior high school 231, became almost like the epicenter of these negative incidents. And the local school board decided to solve this problem. They were going to open an annex, meaning a another junior high school, but in Rosedale, a town, you know, a few miles over, but that was more permanently white. Uh, And so what happened was that all of the parents, all the white parents in junior high school 231 basically took their kids out and sent them to this annex in Rosedale, leaving our school, um, junior high school 231, as an all-black, you know, basically segregated school. And my parents, you know, on the assumption that this, where the white kids go, that's where the better education will be. 
um, were going to send me there too. Um, you know, they came to this country to make sure I had a great opportunity, me and my brother. And so they weren't going to miss that um, by leaving me in what was perceived to be what would become a really bad school. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, each one of us has epiphany moments in our, in our lives where you remember them or not. Well, this one, I think, was a moment for me because, you know, my parents were amazing. My parents were married for 48 years before my dad passed away. Um, we were, um, uh, uh, you know, every, my parents would crawl through broken glass for us, right? So the thought of me challenging them on an idea was the remotest thing. But the Sunday night before the Monday morning that the transfer papers had to be submitted, I did the unthinkable. You know, my, we were sat in the living room where we had many, many, many family conversations. And I, I basically begged my father and begged my mother not to transfer me. Why does my school have to be worse just because everyone left is going to be black? Yeah, I understand. Some of my friends are leaving. Some of my white friends are leaving. But, you know, that's on them. That's not on us. I love, I love my teachers. Can I stay? Can I stay? I'll work hard. Believe me, I promise. I promise. And I you, promise. you were what, 13 or 14? I was 12. 12? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no. And, the, and believe me, like I, it, you know, it's just there was something about this particular decision. And, you know, ultimately my parents relented. It was the first time I'd asked for anything of substance from my parents. You know, you know, <laughs> when you're 12 years old. But they did something that they did not want to do, which was to leave me in the in my school. And the reason it's so powerful for me is that I think, I mean, I wouldn't have described it then, but what I describe now is my first experience with this thing called agency, that I felt really intensely about this thing. And I was willing to put my effort into it. And it, show, it showed me by them acquiescing that I could have some influence on the ultimate outcome. It also helped me realize that just because of the demographic makeup of a particular institution, that should have nothing to do with the expectations of what people in that institution can do. So, you know, yeah, we were an all black school. So what? You know, did, were, was the implication that in order for me to be successful, I had to have white kids in my presence? I mean, again, I mean, I had some, I mean, I had great friends who were leaving and that was a bummer, but that didn't make me feel that now inherently my education had to be less than. And so that lesson, I think, is something I really took from that experience many years ago. You, you say that you didn't conceive it at the time as agency the way you do now but you do say something clicked in inside you some sense of what, what self-direction or yeah. uh uh again you know the, the the affirmation of what you can do isn't entirely going to be determined by by your circumstances you can be creative. You can be active here. And that that stuck with you. you yeah. said. I mean, you say it carried you all the way to the White House. Uh, that, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Uh, and, and you never, I mean, this, this is, I don't think you go into this in any occasion like this in the book, but were there times when that sense of agency flagged? When moments of despair might have kicked in for one reason or another? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, 
the whole reason you or I want to cultivate the sense of agency in young people, in the rising generation, and, and we will go into more of my definition of it, is because inevitably you're going to face moments that are overwhelmingly um, ominous or pessimistic or that under normal conditions you would succumb. I mean, frankly, that's why I've written the book. I mean, I, I, I set up this frame of blame the system and blame the victim, these narratives, and we'll, we'll go into them. Yeah. Because I think young people are on a daily basis being confronted with messages of everything that you can't do, maybe because of your race, maybe because of your gender, maybe because of your economic situation. Here are all the reasons that you have to wait on someone else. And my whole point with agency is that it's a recognition that challenges are going to occur inevitably, but not that you have to succumb to them. It's this whole idea of you know, becoming a victor versus becoming a victim. Yeah. You, you talk about the American dream in positive terms. You think it's a great thing, but you then bring in data on pessimism, widespread pessimism, especially among younger yep. generations that, that sort of put the dream in jeopardy. I mean, it's hard to dream if you think your dream will never come true, right? Yeah. Uh, where, where, Ian, where where is this pessimism coming from? Is it empirical conditions? Hey, life is hard, you know, and it's getting harder. Is it what 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 what, would, what do you cite as the sources of this pessimism? Yeah, it's it's a really good question because it has certainly has not always been this way. I mean, I, I cite a study in the book from the Archbridge Institute where I think it's something like only like thirty seven percent of young people, you know, age 15 to 24, believe they have agency or this idea that they can lead a meaningful life, which is almost half of what older uh, Americans feel. So there's really this great generational shift. And, and, and think about the time that we're living in, the, the, the technological innovation, the, the, the discoveries about even understanding the human brain, the human condition. I mean, there's just an incredible story I read in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about a young woman in Mexico who was born with a deformed ear on her left side. It was not, you know, not functioning. Um, and, and this has become a real problem for her. And yet these scientists figured out a way to capture her DNA cells and were able to replicate them. And then using a DNA, uh, a 3D printer, literally printed an exact replica of her right ear using her DNA cells and attached it to her left, you know, attached it to her left ear. And now she has a functioning ear and wow. it, it, it's, it's one of and it, the body, her body hasn't rejected it because it's, you know, it's her, her DNA. And the reason I share it, it's like one of these incredible, one of many, many examples of the kind of innovation uh, that is occurring where we can, we can, we can literally 3d print, you know, body parts to help people in like in this situation and yet, even with these levels of innovation, even with all this progress, look at the high levels of loneliness, yeah. um, depression, um, deaths of despair, particularly amongst young people. And so I started to try and figure out why is it that there's such a disconnect between what seems like there should be a very high sense of possibility in our country and yet this deep sense of pessimism. And that's where, again, I came back to these two narratives that are 
what I call blame the system, which is essentially saying based on your race, class, gender, America is inherently rigged against you. Or on the other spectrum, blame the victim where America's great. You're the problem. You know, you haven't pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. You're somehow the architect of your own failure. And between those two narratives, that's where I think the sense of, wow, well, what can I do? You know, that's what that's where I think it's kind of coming from. You call it, yeah, one one place you call it a narrative of powerlessness. Uh, Learned helplessness, yes. Isn't, isn't it awful to imagine, Ian, a 16-year-old who has already given up on that, who, who doesn't have any faith, no trust, no, no belief, uh, that either, either I can't do it or the world won't let me do it. Right. That's uh, that. What you just said in those finite set of words is what encapsulates what I think a lot of young people are experiencing right now. And what I want to do with agency is give them a framework to say, okay, I get it. I'm in a challenging situation. This is not Pollyannish in which I'm just going to you know, ignore realities that I might face, but to know that there are institutions so that you're not alone in confronting these challenges. Agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. And so that's why I put forth this framework of free family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship as the four pillars. If more young people were to embrace them, they could confront the narrative that you just described, that the world is against me or it's my fault if I'm not making progress. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You've obviously have vast experience in the education sphere. Are these narratives of, of unfairness or powerlessness or pessimism, are they widespread among educators? Do a lot of educators believe this? I would have to say increasingly yes to that. Um, and not because people are um, not well-intended. It's just that we, we seem to, in the United States, have adopted this kind of frame where we're less frequently treating kids as individuals, but more so as just avatars of some marginalized identity group. Right. So you, you, for example, you raised the, the NATE, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, the nation's report card. That's an example of, you know, every two years, this assessment is given and we find out that, whoop, once again, we've got uh, an achievement gap between black and white students, for example. Right. And, and that gap has existed for 30, 40 years. And so the tendency starts to become, well, if there's a disparity, I mean, this is the blame the system ideology. This is Ibram Kendi. This is New York Times 1619 Project. Well, these gaps between races must be due 
to systemic racism, right? There, there must be due to racial discrimination in a way, in such a way that a young, an individual young person can't solve these problems, right? And yet, when you look at this data, you actually see that while we're obsessing around these gaps between black and white, you actually start to realize that amongst white students, we've never had a situation where more than 44, 45% of white students are reading at grade level. Yeah. That's a problem. And it's unlikely that systemic racism is the reason that white students, a majority of white students are not reading. So perhaps there are other factors beyond just race, like degradation in family structure, the explosion in single parent households to young women, lack of access to school choice, lack of high expectations and high quality curricula in schools. The reason it's important to identify those things is we can start to not have young people believe that they're trapped in a narrative where based on a single characteristic, that's why they're not being successful. Maybe there are factors in their control that can make the hugest difference in their own outcomes. And that's where, again, a sense of agency becomes, in my view, much more powerful. You have a phrase in chapter five. Uh, it is, quote, the hard bigotry of anti-racist expectations. What, what is that? Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of examples of, you know, anti-racism on its surface certainly is, seems like a good thing. You know, we, who, wants, who wants to not be an anti-racist? But when you see the governor of Oregon, for example, who recently uh, changed the laws there so that because of equity and to help kids of color and because of anti-racist agenda, we no longer require students to demonstrate proficiency in math and reading in order to graduate from high school in the name of equity, in the name of anti-racism. It's, it, 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 it's the most... It's the most cynical, it's the most, um, I don't know, it's just, it's heinous. Um, and I could give you many, many examples of, well, let's just lower the standard in order to create some kind of equality of outcome or, or equity. Yeah. And so when I say the hard bigotry of anti-racist expectations, unfortunately, many of the kinds of things that are done in the name of anti-racism usually treat minority kids as inherently oppressed, inherently victimized. It usually treats, you know, white kids as inherently privileged, inherently oppressors. I mean, there's something called the privilege walk. Are you familiar with that at all? Unfortunately, I am. Yes. Well, if, if, you're, if you're listeners or not, you know, that's the phenomenon where imagine a classroom students, the teachers at the front of the room, they have everyone line up horizontally and they start asking a series of questions. You know, if you're white, take two steps forward. If you're black, take three steps backward. And <laughs> there's a series of questions that at the end of it are basically supposed to cement the fact that you are inherently, um, you know, inherently a victim, you know, um, you know, but usually at the end of the, you know, the black males are all, um, at the back of the room and the white uh, males are at the front. And again, it's done in the name of anti-racism. Um, and in my view, again, this kind of thinking, this kind of 
what I call monocausal thinking, where anytime there's any issue related to race and there's a disparity, well, that must be due to systemic racism. It hurts kids. Let me give you, let me give you one other example um, that's often uh, when we talk about, for example, the racial wealth gap. That is often uh, shown as proof of both historic and present day racial discrimination. So the 2019 survey of consumer finances showed that the average white family, when looked at race alone, has about $160,000 more wealth than the average black family. Boom, mic drop, <laughs> all done. That's the proof. Racism is at the core. And that's what an anti-racist would say. But if you take into account just two other factors, family structure and education level, the average married college-educated college Black family has about $160,000 more wealth than the average white single-parent family. I, I, so, I've got to save that statistic. That, that's remarkable. Yes. Well, yeah, keep it. So it's and, and uh, 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances, because again, that's usually the data that's often cited as proof of the insurmountable um, you know, disparity, um, but it's $160,000 fully reversed when you take into account uh, marriage and college education. And again, to use this example, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the lead author of the New York Times 1619 Project, she wrote an 8,000-word essay in the New York Times Magazine called What We Are Owed. And in it, she makes her case for why reparations, a trillion, 15, 14, 15 trillion dollar reparations program is the only answer to uh, improve economic outcomes for black people. But in this essay, she says, it doesn't matter what a black person does. Doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save. None of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. Whoa. First of all, first of all, Nicole Hannah-Jones in her own personal life has done all of those things, right, to lead. I would like to know just what her salary offer was from Chapel Hill <laughs> and, and to see how many how many adjuncts it would take to make, make up, up the same salary. Yes. Uh, uh, well, there, there. <laughs> no, no, no. And, you know, it's important that we call this out. And by the way, good for her that yeah. she's gotten married, that she's gotten an education, because those are the pathways to success for kids of all races. So rather than put out a narrative that says, well, doesn't matter what you do, it's pointless, none of these things matter. Let's be honest. Let's be honest with kids, with kids who are about to make their decisions about entering young adulthood. And let's give them a real shot, not by pandering, not by putting forth these narratives of, no, you can't do anything because the system's too bad or it's your fault. That's why I've written this book, because young people need to know the truth about what's possible within their own lives. You know, there's so much to talk about more in, in the book, um, but I wanted to get to one, one thing, really, really our, la our last thing. Something happened to you on July 11th, oh, 2016. At about 4 p.m. Describe, uh, describe that experience. 
Yeah, because, you know, this was another epiphany moment. Um, you know, I had been running a network of schools at that point for about six years. We had incredible demand uh, in the South Bronx. Uh, as I mentioned, we had nearly 5,000 kids on our wait list. Um, you know, uh, I, you know I, I imagine it must be a horrible feeling to sit there and watch all those kids and parents who didn't get in through the lottery. You know, in New York City, again, based on the last data, there were 81,000 families that applied for us, um, public charter schools for which there were only 33,000 available, right? So you're talking about nearly 50,000 families desperate for a high quality education, almost all low income, almost all black and Hispanic. And guess what? There's a cap on charter schools. So you can't even open uh, new schools uh, currently. And so this, you know, so that's actually, by the way, that's actually a real example of a systemic barrier that needs right. to be, needs to be acknowledged. And so I, I say, it, you know, so the blame the system ideology is not completely without merit, right? There are some systemic barriers that we have to fight through, but we made this. But, 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 but that July day. Yeah, no, 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 no. so I'm going to get there. So, <laughs> so we made the decision back in 2016 because we did have the ability to grow. We had a couple of charters. And so we said all of our new schools were going to open in the South Bronx because that's where the demand is. We have single digit percentages of kids graduating from high school ready for college. And so we moved our headquarters from Tribeca uh, on West Broadway, which is very she-she and very cool and all that. And we moved to near 149th Street and 3rd Avenue in the heart of the South Bronx. There was a needle exchange on the corner. So literally there were drug addicts walking by the front of our you know, entrance to our, our office. And, you know, it made some of our staff nervous. Um, but that's where our kids were. And so we decided to take a walking tour of the neighborhood. You know, and as, as we're walking, we see uh, in front of us this 27-foot baby blue Winnebago truck with all of these adults standing around it, very excited. It's almost like the ice cream truck, you know, that hangs out at Little League. Everyone's really excited. As we get closer, we see uh, graffiti lettering on the side of the truck. And that graffiti lettering says, who's your daddy? Like, what's that? And I started researching it. I found that this guy, the uh, Jared Rosenthal, I think is his name, is the the um, the entrepreneur who who created the Who's Your Daddy truck. Turns out it's a mobile DNA testing center where low income folks were spending somewhere between three hundred fifty and five hundred dollars to answer fundamental questions like, "Could you be my sister? Are you my father?" Deep searing questions about identity based mm -hmm. on one of the most fundamental elements of who we all are, which is your family. And I discovered that the non-marital birth rate in this part of the Bronx was about 85%. So nearly nine in 10 babies were born outside of marriage. Hmm. And then I discovered this data, you know, in Chicago and Appalachia, these numbers were not that dissimilar. And I started to connect that the, the conditions under which many kids, not all, because, you know, being born into a single parent household is not necessarily a guarantee of failure, but mm -hmm. 
but the data is overwhelming that being born into a married two-parent household makes a huge difference in the life possibilities of the kids and the parents, particularly amongst women 24 and under. So that seeing that data, seeing the normalcy of that truck, how, how accepted it was, made me believe that it, my schools, as good as they were, necessary but not sufficient. We had to take on a bigger role in helping young people think about the whole series of decisions that can likely lead them to success. And that's when I discovered something called the success sequence. You know, if you finish just your high school degree, get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if you have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. There it is. There it is. We should be teaching kids this because you're going to be a decision maker in your own life, right? And it's not 100%. This life is a series of probabilities, but we got to give kids a shot. And so in my framework, Free, where the first F is family, it's not about the family that you're from. It's about the family you form. Hmm. And that's why this data is so important that young people should know that. The book is Agency, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victim narrative and discover their pathway to power. Ian Rowe, thank you for an excellent conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's have the courage to say the truth to young people about the levers that they do have in control of their own lives. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. 